Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, praise for Bin Laden. TikTok suddenly has young Americans believing 9-11 was justified. Any coincidence, China's propaganda campaign starts when President Xi arrives in America. Chaos. Ceasefire now! The left feels the full brunt of a rage they did little to contain. We follow the money behind a protest movement that's hardly grassroots. Texas fights back, a new border policy from a state that's had enough of inaction from the feds. A Republican from Texas now says his party in Washington needs to get its act together. You want to come down to the floor and come explain to me one material, meaningful, significant thing the Republican majority has done. And start spreading the news. They're leaving today, tomorrow, and the day after. How calls to tax the rich are sending New York City to the poorhouse. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, the upside down world we all live in. Young Americans now think 9-11 was justified. And the left now needs the police to save them, literally, from the far left. A mob of progressives attacked fellow Democrats outside of the party's headquarters in Washington, D.C. They demanded a ceasefire now in Gaza. Never mind, that only helps Hamas. It's the clearest sign yet of the deep divide in the Democratic Party over Israel that continues to grow. We're going to get to the 2024 implications a little bit later in the show. But first, we'd like to bring you the news. According to TikTok, young Americans seem to think now that Osama bin Laden, the 9-11 mastermind, was right. All thanks to propaganda on the Chinese-owned app that your kids or grandkids use every day. Videos are now running rampant. Millions of people. Millions upon millions of people are watching these videos on TikTok about Osama bin Laden's letter to America, which he wrote two decades ago, in which he explained why he orchestrated the attacks on September 11, 2001. Suddenly now, just yesterday, this letter is coming back to life. And here's how young Americans are responding. I feel the same exact way I felt when I was deconstructing Christianity. I will never look at this country the same. I feel like I'm going through like an existential crisis right now. Under settler colonialism, any kind of resistance is branded as terrorist because the only acceptable violence is violence by the occupier. The actions of 9-11 and those acts committed against the USA and its people 
were all just the buildup of our government failing other nations. If you're Muslim and you've lived in the U.S. since 9-11, you know more truth than the typical citizen. Now it's all coming to light because of Palestine. Hmm. Of course, we're not going to read any part of the letter because we don't believe in sharing terrorist ideology. But also because there's far more to the story than those videos. TikTok can be equated to Chinese leader Xi Jinping's Trojan horse. On the day he arrived in America, on the day for high-stakes meetings with President Biden, those clips were at the top of everyone's feed. That's Chinese hybrid warfare at its finest. Matthew Doherty, senior writer at the National Review, well, explained it this way, quote, Can you even imagine the conversations when the Chinese software engineers realized that American youth was already so brain-poisoned they could drop a Guardian link, that's how people found this letter after 20 years, into the mix and get thousands of young Americans to endorse 9-11. Not only did these people justify terror attacks that left nearly 3,000 Americans dead, they also showed clear and unwavering support for the Hamas terrorists. One in three Americans under the age of 30 get their news from TikTok. That's a 255% increase over the past three years. And the propaganda fed to them on TikTok about this current conflict is unquestionably anti-Israel, full stop. That now explains why we see far left young Americans willing to attack members of their own party over a ceasefire. Perhaps that's why we see Jewish college kids attacked on campus day after day. And perhaps that's why Hamas seems to be winning the information war, particularly among young Americans. It's not really young Americans' fault. Let's just consider the operation that's going on right now at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza. The IDF has shown overwhelming evidence over and over and over again that Hamas is running its operation from beneath the hospital. The IDF just in the past couple of hours has put out some new video of weapons stashed in the compounds, the tunnels leading to the Hamas command centers. But for some reason, it's not reaching kids on TikTok. It's real. American intelligence backs up the Israeli reporting. Just listen to John Kirby. We have our own intelligence uh, that convinces us that Hamas was using al-Shifa as a command and control node. We are still convinced uh, of the soundness of that intelligence. Hmm. Remember, that's a democratic administration. But a third of young Americans don't know that. They've never heard that. Because they're watching the news, according to the Chinese, on TikTok. Israel had the audacity to detonate a medicine storehouse at Gaza's largest hospital. Displaced people have been trapped there by the military for days. And anyone who tries to flee has been shot at. Not a single bullet has been fired by a Palestinian in the hospital. If you go to the IDF, they shared this video. They initially posted saying no cuts, no edits, just the undeniable truth, which they then deleted. They then re-uploaded with edits. The Hamas-run government media office in Gaza said that the Israeli military had beaten patients. The disinformation campaign pushed by the Chinese is a problem now. But as our friend Eric Erickson pointed out, it's going to be an even bigger problem next year from his Substack as we head into 2024. The top news source of young Americans is literally controlled by the military of a foreign adversary that not only uses the platform to spy on Americans, but also uses it to feed our youth malicious disinformation 
designed to turn them both against their basic biology because of how much Twitter, uh, how much TikTok embraces transgenderism, but also against their nation. Xi Jinping came to America and brought with him his Trojan horse. He succeeded in controlling the hearts and minds of so many young Americans. But if you get your news from TikTok, you would have absolutely no idea. Elbridge Colby is here, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development, and noted uh, China hawk. I think that's a fair description. Good to see you, sir. Look, uh, we're going to get to the idea of disinformation, misinformation, because I was told back in the day that was really bad. Now nobody seems to care. But <laughs> let, let's deal with Xi's visit right now. Coincidence that Xi comes to America and all these people find a letter that's 20 years old? Um, look, if it's controlled by the Chinese and the Chinese military and they have Communist Party members on their board, I think it uh, I would not be surprised if it was uh, intentional. And uh, there was a lot that's been orchestrated about the Chinese visit. They they uh, uh, exhaustively negotiate every piece of it. So I think it's a, a fair, a fair hypothesis. All right. Interestingly enough, the White House saw fit to respond to what's going on on TikTok all of a sudden. I'll put up the White House response. Um, interestingly enough, in the entire White House response, they do not mention the word TikTok once. They don't call out the Chinese. They don't call out the Chinese algorithm. Oftentimes, as you know, in these meetings, it's what you don't say versus what you do. Uh, Plan Taiwan invasion, intercepting of U.S. ships, uh, illegal police offices in the United States, spy base in Cuba, obviously TikTok, the spy balloon, the COVID cover-up, spying on U.S. ports with Ukraine technology. I didn't hear President Biden mention that one of those things came up and that he demanded the Chinese stop. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think he raised some of the issues, but I definitely don't think uh, he made them forcefully. And I think, actually, if anyone made a, a forceful point, it was probably Xi Jinping. I was struck. Uh, the administration went into the meeting Openly saying to three senior administration of four, uh, officials said to friendly reporters that their goal was to steady the relationship because of what's going on in Ukraine, Israel and the reelection campaign. Apparently what Xi Jinping said in response in a private meeting, according to administration official, was uh, we need to have you know, peace in the Taiwan Strait. And, and Xi Jinping said, peace is all well and good, but this issue needs to be resolved or something to that effect. So mm-hmm. I, I, actually, I actually don't think that, that Xi Jinping was necessarily all that friendly or necessarily even that deceptive, perhaps in the speech to American business leaders later that evening. But actually, I think, you know, you look at the body language of Tony Blinken, for instance, there's some stuff. It's funny, you know, it's it's amazing that that you brought that up because that's where we're going, because there was that moment in the press conference. Obviously, Xi Jinping doesn't do press conferences, uh, but he President Biden did about 20 or 30 minutes. uh, And he was asked what clearly was a question that caught him a little off guard. And to his credit, he gave an honest answer when he said, do you still believe that Xi Jinping is a dictator? That's something that President Biden had said before. Take a listen to Biden's answer, and to your point, watch Tony Blinken more importantly. He's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is uh, a country that's based on a form of government totally different than ours. What is wrong with telling the truth? Well, look, actually, my view is speak softly and carry a big stick. What I don't really get in this situation is how is it their plan to basically get, you know, tie down in Europe and the Middle East, ask the Chinese to help them out, uh, and then, you know, plaintively say, let's study the relationship, inadequately prepare our military posture and otherwise in the Pacific, and then talk smack. So I, I believe in telling the truth. I don't believe in telling a lie, but you don't always need to say it 
uh, uh, yeah. directly. And I, I just actually am perplexed. I mean, they've gone through all these, you know, cartwheels and these cartwheels to get this meeting, to get this meeting, right. and begging. And then the guy says he's a dictator and kind of blows the whole thing. And if you're going to talk smack, you better be ready to back it up. And we're not. And that's no. what I really don't understand. And it seems as though the Chinese know we're not. And I think that's what really worries me, Lil, is you saw some of the pictures of them walking, and, and Xi Jinping got a look at President Biden. I don't want to be uncharitable, but the man isn't what he was 20 years ago. Well, it's certainly not what Xi Jinping knew when he met uh, Biden as uh, vice president. Exactly. Bridge, it's good to see you as always. Great to see you. Thank you very yeah, much. Pleasure. All right, we invite you to sign up for War Notes. There is a cold war with China. We hope it doesn't turn into a hot war. Gives you a free look at the show every day at 4 p.m. So you go to readwarnotes.com and subscribe. The note started as our internal email discussion about the most important stories of the day. It's literally how we put the show together every day. Our internal discussions, our thoughts about the most important things, most important tweets. Some of Bridges' commentary often makes it in there. You get to be a part of it. You can respond to the email with your thoughts or join us on social media at Leland Vinnard on Instagram or Twitter. That's readwarnotes.com, and you can subscribe for free. Pro-Hamas rallies are becoming increasingly violent, and they look a lot different than the pro-Israel rally we saw here yesterday. All right, right side of your screen were the people praying at the pro-Israel lobby. And then there is the left side of the screen where pro-Hamas participants blocked the Bay Bridge for hours during rush hour. They threw their car keys into the water. Then there's this ceasefire now group that got together outside the Democratic National Committee headquarters here in D.C., They tried to force their way inside. Evidently, they wanted to confront some Democratic congressmen. Six Capitol Police officers and 90 protesters got hurt, yet only one arrest. Of course, there's some points to be made about the absurd double standard of how police treat conservative versus liberal protesters and the BLM types that burned St. John's Church. We're going to get into that a little later in the show. But let's step back for a second and follow the money. Pull back the curtain to see who's pulling the purse strings on these now seemingly violent protests, many of which call for the murder of Jews. Well, follow the money, and some of it goes back to Neville and Roy Singman and Jody Evans known Marxists and communist China lovers. They currently live in Shanghai. Sigmund and Evans have donated more than $20.4 million to a group called the People's Forum. People's Forum have been organizing a lot of these protests, like the one where pro-terrorist protesters stormed into face the White House on November 4th. Still nobody arrested from that. A rally in Times Square just one day after the brutal butchering of 1,300 Israelis on October 7th. Somehow the Palestinian flags were all ready for that. Then there was the sit-in at the Senate's annual national security meeting, where they were chanting ceasefire now and holding up red hands. And again today at the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, where they held up traffic for four hours. Seventy people there were cited. Join me now, Francesca Block, a journalist for the Free Press. She recently wrote an article called The American Multimillionaire Marxist Funding Pro-Palestinian Rage, and joins us now. Congratulations on some really incredible reporting. We're, We're glad to have you. Um, how closely aligned are we to believe that the sort of neo-Marxist movement and the pro-Palestinian movement are, are, or is this group just sort of using the Palestinian movement to ferment discord, anger in America? 
So thank you so much for having me on tonight. What I can tell you is that, as you mentioned before, Neville Roy Singham and his wife, Jody Evans, are a couple who live in China currently. And Neville Roy Singham has ties to at least four different news organizations that push Chinese Communist Party talking points. And in 2017, after he sold his tech company for more than $700 million dollars, he also founded the People's Forum in Midtown Manhattan, and his wife, Jody Evans, was placed on their board. Now, since then, he has funded this, this nonprofit more than $20 million, and this nonprofit is behind many of the protests we're seeing. Not all of them, but they have been organizing at least the protests we saw in Washington, D.C. on November 4th. And so... In terms of the ideological connections between these different organizations, Neville Roy Singham obviously funds these different Chinese propaganda news sites, and his wife is on record praising China, praising the government, and even justifying the oppression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, China. Hmm. All right, you, interesting you bring up his wife. We have a soundbite from her. We'll take a listen. China is not our enemy. We all need to be more educated on China so we can be in cooperation and relationship for a future. Our aggression on China is with a nuclear power. And our U.S. tax dollars are funding more nuclear weapons. So these people are true believers with an awful lot of money. What does the People's Forum do? What's, what sort of, what's their end goal here? So the People's Forum builds themselves as a movement incubator. They're a nonprofit that tries to support other revolutionary-type movements um, in New York or across the country or even across the world. In their office space in Midtown Manhattan, it's more of a gathering space, and they have a coffee shop there. They have a bookshop where they sell a lot of socialist literature, revolutionary-type literature, and they host a lot of classes, things like that. You can attend hmm. right now one on Lenin and the Path to Revolution. That's just one oh, example. It seems like the, 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 19, the 1960s in the weather underground. Uh, <laughs> the history doesn't repeat itself. It does rhyme. All right. This is what I'm trying to figure out, though. Um, why is the Marxist ideology, and this, this has been true going back to the 70s, right, during the days when the PLO uh, was supported by the Soviets. Why are these two movements always seemingly linked? And the, the people that they're turning out for these mass protests and organizing, are they... Are they just anarchists? Are they Marxist? What, who is the People's Forum getting? I, I can't necessarily speak to all the people and their reasons for why they're coming out on the streets. What I can say is that the People's Forum does promote a lot of revolutionary-type ideologies. It's very much in their brand. It's in the literature that they put out. It's in the classes that they invite the public to attend. So it's very much part of the brand of the People's Forum and of Neville Roy Singham and his wife, Jody Evans. Wow. Incredible reporting from the free press. Um, really important reporting. Uh, follow the money, uh, as journalists do. It's great talking to you. Thank you. Uh, let us know when you've got more stuff coming out. This, this is far from over, all right? Will do. Yeah, Thanks thank so much. You. Yeah, thank you. It's taken 10 days for police in California to make an arrest in the homicide of a pro-Israeli demonstrator named Paul Kessler. This is video from the scene. You can see Kessler lying on the sidewalk. And the man who allegedly hit him, Loe Anjali, sitting next to him. Al-Naji is accused of smacking him with a megaphone, causing Kessler to fall backwards and crack his head on the sidewalk. He died a short time after. Police interviewed Anjani immediately afterwards. They had testimony from people at the scene. 
And if you're curious about his intent, here's a video from his Instagram where you can see him say, quote, they want everyone to condemn Hamas. If they asked me to condemn Hamas, I would say, what's the rush? Let history decide. CNN covered it by saying arrest made in death of Jewish protester who fell and hit his head as if he spontaneously fell to his death. No mention of the guy who allegedly clocked him and caused the fall or that person's obvious political leanings. Ten days to put the person behind bars in the death of Kessler. He's charged with involuntary manslaughter. Ten days. No outrage from CNN. No questions about hate crime charges. Think about that. Jewish man dies when confronted by a Hamas sympathizer. It's not a hate crime. And it took ten days to charge him, even though the alleged assailant was sitting right there. It took four days for police to arrest Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. A day to arrest Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot and killed Black Lives Matter protesters in Wisconsin, and two days for cops to get James Alex Fields Jr., the white supremacist who drove his car into a crowd of people killing one and injuring others in Charlottesville. But evidently, if the victim is Jewish, 10 days, and everybody's just fine to wait. Next, scenes like this, major city gridlock, protests, and the DNC under attack over Palestine show that the dispute over Israel could be reshaping politics here at home. Not could be, it is. We'll look at how that's going to play out in the News Nation presidential debate coming up. And New York's embattled mayor can try and blame the migrant crisis for his city going broke. Well, it was going broke a lot earlier than this. The latest cuts by Eric Adams and why it hurts the middle class the most. We've covered the left's divide over supporting Israel. More on that a little later in the show. But it's happening on the right as well. Tucker Carlson and provocateur Candace Owens spent nearly an hour discussing it. There's an emotional response that is disproportionate, I think, on the part of some commentators. I've never seen anything like the emotion from any commentator around those tragedies as I'm watching about a foreign tragedy. I think that's odd. And undoubtedly, they do hold a pretty big sway over an important part of the Republican electorate. Notably, in the Republican field, that voice is best represented by Vivek Ramaswamy, currently in fourth place behind Trump, DeSantis, and Haley. They will all be welcome to debate the issue and others at the News Nation presidential debate. Next month, Eliana Johnson will moderate along with our Elizabeth Vargas and Megyn Kelly. Eliana Johnson, editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon, is with us now. Thank you. Uh, is this is this sort of weird isolationist part of the Republican Party are always been there, this anti-Israel faction? I absolutely think those views have always been a part of the party. Uh, you can look back at uh, Charles Lindbergh. Uh, they've always been a part of the country as well, um, from Charles Lindbergh um, in the pre-World War II era to Pat Buchanan, who was an important and influential voice um, in the in the 70s and 80s, um, and uh, to folks like Tucker Carlson and Vivek Ramaswamy now. And approaching this um, this presidential debate, um, what we're really looking to do is draw out the distinctions between these candidates and make sure voters know uh, who stands where, what the difference is, uh, 
are between these guys and what the diff- what the implications are of the um, the distinctions between the candidates for uh, for the country, including Donald Trump, who won't who is uh, not likely to be on that debate stage or has said he won't be there. Oh, don't 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 give up hope just yet. OK, there's still, you know, there's still possibility. And look, you know, you think about it, if all of a sudden over the next we, we a couple of weeks, people there. People people go back for Thanksgiving and all of a sudden the poll numbers change a little bit. You could see uh, Donald Trump starting to think about it. This is what I'm what I'm interested in is that you you used to have mostly a Democratic base uh, for for from the Jewish caucus. Right. It was 70, 75 percent of of Jews voted for Democrats. That seems to be changing I'm wondering if you're going to get in what you're what you're hearing of formerly Democratic important members of the, the Jewish community and the Jewish donor class suddenly now getting involved in the Republican primary and what that looks like. I'm sort of skeptical of that, Leland, actually, because um, President Biden has been uh, vocally pro-Israel. And I think he's done that um, understanding that Jews are an important part of the Democratic coalition. Um, I was struck by Biden's posture in his press conference last night after his four hour meeting with President Xi of China. And um, it was interesting after that meeting um, in which he announced um, significant changes in the um, uh, China-America relationship. Most of the questions he got from the press were actually about Israel-Gaza. And he stuck his ground um, on maintaining his stalwart pro-Israel stance. It may not be as far, uh, you know, as strident as those um, on as those of the Republican candidates, but it's pretty pro-Israel. And I and so I'm just skeptical that Jewish voters are going to move to the right. Of course, President Obama was not pro-Israel. And, and, you know, conservative Jews hoped uh, hoped that their fellow Jews on the left would move. And we just didn't see it. So um, so count me among the skeptics. uh, Are you skeptical? If you're going to moderate, if you're going to moderate a yeah, if you're going to moderate a presidential debate, skeptical is a good thing. Uh, we'll be talking, obviously, uh, coming up before it and after as well. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Uh, on point tonight, just when you thought, literally, when you thought life in New York City couldn't get any worse. Just today, the mayor announced budget cuts to the police department, the education department and other basic services that New Yorkers rely on every day. It's about to get worse. This is probably one of the most painful ex- exercises I've gone through. And, you know, when we look at uh, around police, when we look at some of the other initiatives that we're doing, uh, that, uh, you know, it's going to it's going to be extremely painful for New Yorkers. Painful indeed. And it's going to be the most painful on New Yorkers, working poor and middle class. The rich don't feel this. They don't care. They escape to Connecticut. Their kids go to private schools. They go out to the Hamptons on the weekend. Maybe they move to Miami. But poor and the middle class among New Yorkers rely on those services from the city, like a subway system that is now overrun with vagrants who routinely use platforms as their toilets. Normal folks in New York will now have to brave the city with fewer cops to protect them from the random attacks we have shown you. There'll be fewer subways for them to get. They'll have to sit on the platforms longer. 
And at some point, they're going to probably get stuck with a larger tax bill for the privilege. It doesn't stop on the subway. Adams said parents might soon have to volunteer at their kids' schools as safety officers because he doesn't have enough money to protect kids. Adams blames the migrants coming to New York. Turns out housing and feeding and dealing with the thousands of illegal immigrants costs a lot of money. New York has that thing where you have to provide housing, a right to shelter. But now they are using this crisis rather than to change the rules and how they deal with the illegal immigration population. They're using the reason, they're using the crisis to cut the budget for the people who need those services the most, the poor and the working class. But New Yorkers have watched the Big Apple rot for years. See, New York used to be the home of the country's fabulously wealthy. But starting with a series of tax hikes in the 2010s to pay for all of these continual progressive ideals, the ultra-rich began to flee the Big Apple in droves. In 2010, New York was home to 13% of the country's millionaires. By 2020, that had fallen to less than 9%. And with that mass exodus that continues, went billions in tax dollars, tax dollars that are spent protecting everyone left behind. Fewer tax dollars means fewer cops, fewer firemen, fewer transit workers, which means trains are slower, and a loss of quality of life that boomed under Mayor Mike Bloomberg. Tax dollars to educate kids who certainly can't afford to attend private schools. Those are gone, out the door. Now those tax dollars help educate kids in Miami or Austin. Sorry, New York. The working poor and middle class can't afford to move. They're the real victims. New Yorkers of all shapes, shades, sizes, are used to seeing placards and windows shouting to tax the rich. There's organized marchers in the streets. They're everywhere. I've not seen this personally, but I'm told by people who live there that $3 million brownstones in Brooklyn have these tax the rich signs. So they did it. They taxed the rich. The rich have left. The amount of social services continues to go up. Crime has spiked. And the people left behind are forced to live with a homeless crisis, a fentanyl crisis, a crime crisis, an immigration crisis, a crisis of leadership. We could go on. So Mayor Adams says it's painful. What he failed to say is it was predictable and it was preventable. That's on point tonight. Coming up next, the brave cops who pulled women and children to safety on the Rio Grande were not federal officers. Pretty interesting. This is the video to show it. They were Texas officers. A new measure would allow local law enforcement to deport illegal immigrants. But is that lawful? We'll see you in a minute. Last night's attack by the far left on the left laid bare the continued divide in the Democratic Party over Israel, those that support Israel and those that are, well, kind of okay with Hamas. So many people across the world are calling for a ceasefire. So many leaders are calling for ceasefire. We are bound by our faith to demand a ceasefire now. Our movement for ceasefire is only growing stronger. We will not be intimidated. We will not be silenced, and we will not stop until we save lives. Omar, Bush, Tlaib, never mind a ceasefire, would probably cost lives rather than save them. 24 members of Congress have pushed for a ceasefire resolution. And because of it, now many in safe Democratic districts, many of the faces you see there, will face some very well-funded primary fights. The lobbying group APAC 
will reportedly spend $100 million plus to support pro-Israel candidates to challenge the squad and other progressives who voted against supporting Israel. The ceasefire now types, if you will. Lauren Wright, associate research scholar and lecturer in politics, Princeton University. Kurt Bardella, LA Times contributor, are here. Nice to see you both. What I think is interesting, Kurt, is that it doesn't seem to have changed any minds. Cory Bush all of a sudden facing now a very well-financed challenger from the Democratic side doesn't really seem to care. Yeah, I mean, I think that, if anything, you've seen that they've doubled down on their position. It's almost hardened their position. I think that's kind of what happens when it's it's a, a religious conflict. And so these are true believers. These are not people who are just saying the thing to get on the news and get the summit. They are true believers, and they are willing to go down if that's what it takes. Lauren, in these primary fights where all of a sudden you have huge amounts of money that would never be spent on a congressional primary fight in a very safe democratic congressional district. How big of an effect does $100 million have? I don't think it's that much. I mean, look, Ilhan Omar is the least popular member of the squad. She's got a 27% approval rating, and she just won re-election with 74% of the vote. Rashida Tlaib won with 64% of the vote. So unfortunately, among Democrats in the primary environment, they don't seem to care about these things, not to mention the squad has had a host of really unpopular positions on a variety of things for years now. They want to cancel rent, no more fossil fuels, no more nuclear, no more police, abolish prisons. These are not mainstream all the, opinions. All, all the and greatest hits are fine. coming back. They've been doing fine. Yeah, but they, those are mainstream opinions perhaps among their voters and the Democratic constituencies in those districts. I'm thinking about Cory Bush from St. Louis, which is a race I know pretty well. Um, I'm not sure that that Democrats wouldn't look for, especially with a large Jewish community in Missouri's first congressional district, wouldn't be more than happy with a well-funded challenger. Yeah, I actually think that I think about sometimes we've seen the squad endorse candidates in other races in primaries, and they haven't won. And I think that if you're going to put $100 million behind some of these races, listen, they're not going to win all of them, obviously. Not all 24 races they want to put money into is going to end up flipping. But I do think some of these members, they could be vulnerable. They could end up flipping. And the thing is, when you're in a safe district, you know how, you know how to just run for re-election on autopilot. We're running into a well-financed challenger that's going to have an operation. It's going to have a ground operation. It's going to be doing voter contact. Like That's a different proposition. And I'm not so sure in this climate running so far to the left. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily going to well, do Look, the other thing is that APAC can not only pour a lot of money into one challenger, they can prevent a lot of money from coming to the incumbent. Just oh, by, yeah. By the, They're going to people who want to keep target. their powder dry and just not right. get involved. Right. Yeah. Um, AOC yesterday, criticism of the Israeli government is virtually non-existent in U.S. politics. Apparently that's not enough. Got to spend $100 million to unseat a few believe in Palestinian human rights and ceasefire that most Americans already support. The acceptable level of dissent is zero. Um, well, no, there's lots of dissent that's possible. But Lauren, she, you know, she's right about one thing. 68% say uh, that they agree Israel should call for a ceasefire and try to negotiate among young Americans, half say they support Hamas um, in this. What's happening with the polling? Is the American public not quite where sort of the, the ethos of American foreign policy has been over the past 50 years? Well, the opinion is really most disturbing, frankly, among Democrats. 80% of Democrats are for a ceasefire. It's barely half of Republicans. And so this really is a phenomenon among Democrats where they're divided and the liberal wing of the party has really taken it over, despite the fact that Hillary Clinton says a ceasefire yeah. would be a gift to Hamas, that anyone calling for a ceasefire doesn't understand Hamas or Middle Eastern history or the fact that they don't abide by them. And 
I don't want to get in the habit of giving you compliments, uh, Leland. Oh, but well, definitely however, don't do it. Stop I will yourself say We're running out of time, but you know what? <laughs> from day one, your reporting has been really impeccable, and your knowledge of the Middle East well, really shows. Well, and and the, i got to say, too, the newsletter the that you put out funny. every day, I think that is an incredible resource for people who don't know the ins and outs of this. Well, thank you. Like, it's very insightful. It's a, it's, a big, it's a big team that we have putting it all together, but thank you, very, thank you both very much. And actually, you've earned yourself round two. Uh, the, the panel will be back here before the show is out. Don't look now. Uh, Chris Cuomo coming up. President Biden may be facing his toughest challenge yet. That's saying something. I don't know why we have Hillary Clinton on the screen. We will have Chris Cuomo to talk about the biggest challenge yet coming up. That movement's got to be from the moderate middle. You're not going to move the left and right unless they're afraid they're going to get defeated. And we're not there, but we've got to get that movement. And this is bigger than just the 2024. It's, it's, well, it's bigger than the 2024 election, too. It's going to go on. The middle's got to recapture the heart and soul of America. That's where people are. All right. Senator Joe Manchin with our very own Chris Cuomo. Just talked to the retiring West Virginia senator. Chris is with us now. I, what is this? Like, maybe, maybe twist my arm. I want to be drafted to run for president. I can't decipher this for us. I, uh, he says, I was going to tell you what I think about it, but who cares? Um, he says, I don't want to be president, but I'll do anything I can to help the country. Now, I get the power of that humility and kind of mm. not wanting people to think that he wants it. Okay, now, now tell me I what actually, you actually think about it. I think that I want you to want it. Um, I, I want you to be there for me. I want you to want to be there for me. Uh, and Joe, uh, Senator Manchin uh, loved my pop. One of my pop's regrets was how he handled not running for president. Um, huh. My father was never going to run for president. There are all these stories about the plane on the runway, but if he weren't in the mafia and all this other BS, he was never going to run. It was just so tempting that he struggled to just tell the, tell the straight truth, which was, look, I don't see myself as president of the United States. I don't think I'm good enough. I'm not going to do it. That was the truth. And they called him Hamlet on the Hudson and all this other stuff. So I said to Manchin, be careful. Because right now the media is liking it. Look at the headline I got. Look at the soundbite I got. But in a little bit of time, people are going to be like, look, either you want to be there for me or you don't. Okay? Don't say I got to find out if there's a group in this country that wants something different than what we're seeing in Washington right now. We know it exists. Most of the country doesn't want Biden or Trump. Most of the country, including Democrats, think we're going the wrong way. So the threshold is there. What I don't know is whether the commitment is there. So I pushed him on it, you know, with, with only best of intentions, because I think he would add to the conversation. Fascinating. All right, we're going to watch you at the top of the hour. Great, great booking uh, and interview. Uh, and wow, what sort of, you bring a perspective to it that nobody else uh, would be able to with an interview. So we're looking forward to it. We'll see you at the top of the hour, Chris. I'm off tomorrow. Have a good weekend, buddy. Be well, brother. See ya. Don't mess with Texas. At least that's what they say. How the Lone Star State is trying something new to stop illegal immigration all on its own. Will it work? One thing. I want my Republican colleagues to give me 
one thing, one, that I can go campaign on and say we did. That's Republican Chip Roy of Texas. Of course, one thing Republicans promised to do is something about the border. Nothing has changed on the border. If anything, the problem keeps getting worse. And while Texas keeps putting up barbed wire, illegal immigrants still reach the American side of the Rio Grande at that point. The Border Patrol is legally required to cut the barbed wire and let them in. Now Texas wants to allow its own police officers to enforce the border. Governor Abbott will soon sign SB4. Makes it a criminal offense to enter the Texas border illegally along the southern border. Punishable by six months in jail. Any law enforcement officer in Texas can arrest an illegal crosser. And the judge then can issue a removal order to send them back to Mexico. Back with the panel, Lauren and Kurt. Uh, all right, Kurt. Eh, we don't know if it's constitutional, but I'm, won- I'm wondering if, given where the country is on the border, it might not be a little bit popular. I mean, I think there's something to be said for if the federal government isn't doing the job, why shouldn't the state be allowed to do the job? Uh, an issue of just state sovereignty, state security. Uh, if you have the resources, the means to do that and the expertise, I don't see why you wouldn't, other than I don't know the constitutional. I mean, that's going to be sorted out in court, obviously, over time here. But this is a failure of the federal government, a failure that is that's, it's, this is not a partisan issue. Both Republican and Democratic administrations have failed at the border for decades now. And at some point, you cannot blame states for taking matters into their own hands, saying, if you're not going to do the job, I'm going to do it. And you can try to take me to court over it. Good luck. Americans not happy with border policy. Seventy one percent of Americans are not happy. I'd love to meet the the, the other twenty nine. They don't live near the border, those twenty nine. Right. Well, yeah. But now, look, you know, there's there's a lot of people now who are suddenly realizing we talked about New York that are suddenly realizing we're a border community, too. Now, is this is this promise spread? Fifty seven percent. Uh, Lauren say they want a wall. Mm-hmm. Um, does does that mean sort of that this is a little bit like the issue of Israel for Democrats that it's a, that the far left part of the party has them hamstrung? It's one of the issues where Republicans are really dominant on the issue. People see them as more credible to deal with it, and that's been the case, frankly, for many years. And the hypocrisy of the Biden administration is not lost on me. They campaigned on an open border, basically, and have fought tooth and nail in court to keep and expand Trump-era deportation policies. However, I think this very well could backfire. Law enforcement officials are strained. They're under immense public scrutiny. They're not trained to deport people necessarily. And so this might end up being a really tough situation for police officers that are put Mm. in a situation where they don't need a lot more stress and a lot more responsibility, and they're severely under-resourced to start with. Kurt, we've been talking about comprehensive immigration reform since, like, I was in grade school, I think. <laughs> yeah. right. um, and that doesn't really date me in the way that it should. Um, help us understand what Democrats are now saying is they're looking at this polling data, and yet they know that they are you know, sort of handcuffed to the far left when it comes to doing anything that even sounds like reasonable enforcement. Right, because you're caught between the people on the left who say this is about the treatment of human beings, that we should be a country that welcomes any and all who are suffering. And again, there are legitimately people out there who are, of course, suffering who want to come here. I get that. Uh, But it's almost like their stance on law enforcement, that it went too far. It went to defund the police. Completely politically unpopular with the majority of the country. Well, here we are now. If you want to have the open border side of it, completely unpopular with the rest of the country. Yeah, no, it's a great point in terms of having having to figure out where exactly that that sweet spot is and solving problems is sometimes. This is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer. He hears things differently 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.